Chapter 22 of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Unicorns by James Hunnaker. Chapter 22 Little Mirrors of Sincerity. Barney in the Box Office. First Scene. It is snowing on the strand not an american actor is in sight though voices are wafted occasionally from the bar of the savoy remember this is a play and the unusual is bound to happen in front of the newly built theatre of arts shaw and science two figures stand as if gazing at the brilliantly lighted facade the doors are wide open a thin and bearded man sits smiling and talking to himself in the box office his whiskers are as sandy as his wit the pair outside regard him suspiciously. Both are tiny fellows, one clean-shaven, the other wearing elaborately arranged hair on his face. They are the two Maxes, Nordau and Birnbaum, says Nordau. Isn't that Bernard in the booking office? By Jove it is! Let's go in. Hasn't he a new play on? I can't say. I'm only a critic of the drama. No cynicism, Maxie, urges Nordau. They approach. In unanimous flakes the snow falls. It is very cold. Cries Bernard on recognizing them. Aye there, Skip. Tonight free list is suspended. I'm giving my annual feast in the cave of culture of the modern idols in one scene. No one may enter, least of all you, Nordau, or you, Sir Critic. Why, what's up, George? asks in a pleading mid-Victorian timber the little Maxie. "'Back to the woods, both of you,' commands George, who has read both Mark Twain and Oliver Herford. "'Besides,' he confidentially adds, "'you surely don't wish to go to a play in which your old friends Ibsen and Nietzsche are to be on view.' "'On view?' quoth the author of Degeneration. "'Yes, visible on a short furlough from Sheol. For one night only, my benefit. Step up, ladies and gentlemen, a few seats left.' THE GREATEST SHOW ON EARTH. I'M IN IT. LIVELY, PLEASE. A MOB RUSHES IN. THE TWO MAXES FADE INTO THE SNOW. BUT IN THE EYES OF ONE THERE IS A MALICIOUS GLITTER. I'M NO MAXIE, HE MURMURS, IF I CAN'T GET INTO A THEATER WITHOUT PAYING. NORDAU DOESN'T HEED HIM. THEY PART. THE NIGHT CLOSES IN, AND ONLY THE MUSICAL RATTLE OF BANGLES ON A knotty WRIST IS HEARD. SECOND SCENE on the stage of the theatre there are two long tables. The scene is set as if for a banquet. The curtain is down. Some men walk about conversing, some calmly, some feverishly. Some are sitting. The light is feeble. However, may be discerned familiar figures. Victor Hugo, solemnly speaking to Charles Baudelaire, who shivers, un nouveau frisson. Flaubert is in a corner, roaring at St. Beauve. The old row over Salambo is on again. Richard Strauss is pulling at the velvet coattails of Richard Wagner without attracting his attention. The master, in company with nearly all the others, is staring at a large clock against the backdrop. Listen for the Parseval chimes, he says, delight playing over his rugged features. Ape of the ideal, booms a deep voice hard by. It is that of Nietzsche whose mustaches droop in Polish cavalier style. Batushka, if those two Dutchmen quarrel over the virility of Parsifal, I am going away. 
The speaker is Tolstoy, attired in his newest Mujik costume, top boots and all. In his left hand, he holds a spade. To the table, gentlemen. It is the jolly voice of the Irish Ibsen, GBS. Lights flare up. Without is heard the brumming of the audience. An orchestra softly plays motives from Peleus et Melisande. Wagner wipes his spectacles, and Maurice Matterlink crushes a block of Belgian oaths between his powerful teeth. But Debussy doesn't appear to notice either man. He languidly strikes his soup spoon on a silver salt cellar and immediately jots down musical notation. The correspondence of nuances, he sings to his neighbor, who happens to be Whistler. Correspondence of fudge, retorts James. You think I'm interested in wallpaper music? Oh, little Luberlo. All are now seated. With his accustomed lingual dexterity, Mr. Shaw says grace, calling down a blessing upon the papier-mâché fowls and the pink stage tea from what he describes as a gaseous invertebrate god, he has read Heckel, and winds up with a few brilliant, heartless remarks. I wish you gentlemen, ghosts, idols, gods, and demigods, alive or dead, to remember that you are assembled here this evening to honor me. Without me, and my books, and my plays, you would, all of you, be dead in earnest, dead literature as well as dead bones. As for the living, I'll have a shy at you some day. I'm not fond of Matterlink. Here, here, comes from Debussy's mystic beard. As for you, Maurice, I can beat you hands down at bettering Shakespeare and for Richard Strauss. Well, I've never tried orchestration, but I'm sure I'd succeed as well as you. Oh, please, won't someone give me a roast beef sandwich? In Russia, I daren't eat meat on account of my disciples there. And in England... It is Tolstoy who speaks. Shaw fixes him with an indignant look. He, the prince of vegetarians. Give him some salt. He needs salting. In tears, Tolstoy resumes his reading of the confessions of Heusmann's. The band on the other side of the curtain swings into the Kaiser March. Stop them! Stop them! screams Wagner. I'm a social democrat now. I wrote that march when I was a monarchist. This was the chance for Nietzsche. Drawing up his tall, lanky figure, he began, You mean, Herr Geyer, I give you your real name. You wrote it for money. You mean, Richard Geyer, that you cut your musical coat to suit your snobbish cloth. You mean the Wagner you never were, that you wrote your various operas which you call music dramas, to flatter your various patrons. Parsifal for the decadent King Ludwig. Pardon. This is too much. Manet's blonde beard wagged with rage. Have we assembled this night to fight over ancient treacheries, or are we met to do honor to the only man in England, and an Irishman assad, who in his place has kept alive the ideas of Ibsen, Nietzsche, Wagner, as for me, uh, I don't need such booming. I'm a modest man. I'm a painter. Ha! You a painter? Sitting alone, Jerome discloses spiteful intonations in his voice. Yes, a painter, hotly replies Manet. And I am in the Louvre? My Olympe? All the worse for the Louvre, sneers Jerome. The two men would have been at each other's throats if someone from the land of the midnight whiskers hadn't intervened. It was Henrik Ibsen 
children, he remarks in a strong Norwegian brogue, please to remember my dignity, if not your own. Long before Max Sterner, Nietzsche interrupted, there never was such a person. Ibsen calmly continues, I wrote that my truth is the truth, and when I see such so-called great men acting like children, I regret having left my cool tomb in Norway. But where are the English dramatists, our confreres? Ask the manner of the revels. Ibsen sat down. Shaw pops in his head at a practicable door. Who calls? We wish to know why our brethren, the English playwrights, are not bidden to meet us, said Matternlink, after gravely bowing to Ibsen, smiling beatifically. St. Bernard replied, because there ain't no such thing as an English dramatist. The only English dramatist is Irish. He disappears. Ensues a lively argument. He may be right, exclaims Matterlink. Yet I, I seem to have heard of, of Pinero, Henry Arthur Jones, Barry. Well, I'll have to ask the trusty ABCZ, Walkley. And the Americans, cries Ibsen who is annoyed because Richard Strauss persists in asking for a symphonic scenario of Pier Gint. I'm sure, the composer complains, Grieg will be forgotten if I write new incidental music for you. Ibsen looks at him sourly. American dramatists? Or do you mean American millionaires? Manet interpolated. No, I, f I, I fancy he means the American painters who imitate my pictures making them better than the original and also getting better prices than i did what envy what slandering what envious feelings sighs nietzsche if my doctrine of the eternal recurrence of all things sublunary is a reality then i shall be sitting with these venomous spiders shall be in this identical spot a trillion years of hence oh horrors why was i born Divided tones, argues Manet, clutching Whistler by his carmelian necktie, are the only— Suddenly Shaw leaps on the stage. Gentlemen, ghosts, gods, idols, I have bad news for you. Max Nordau is in the audience. Nordau, wails everyone. Before the lights could be extinguished, the guests were under the table. No taking chances, whispers Nietzsche. Who is this Norda, a, a spy of Napoleon's? demands Hugo in bewildered accents. For answer, Baudelaire shivers and intones, Oh, Poe, Poe, oh, Edgar Poe. Silence so profound that one hears the perspiration drop from Wagner's massive brow. Third scene. It still snows without. Max, the only Nordau, stands in silent pride. He is alone. The erstwhile illuminated theatre is as dark as the hall of Eblis. Gone are the idols, all. I need but crack that old whip of decadence, and they crumble. So much for a mere word. And now to work. I'll write the unique tale of Shaw's cave of idols, for I alone witnessed the denouement. He spoke aloud. Judge his chagrin when he heard the other Max give him this cheery leading motive. I saw it all. What a story for my weekly review. How like a yellow pear tree, exclaims the disgusted theorist of mad genius. Nordau speeds his way, 
as from the box office comes the chink of silver. It is GBS counting the cash. Who says a poet can't be a pragmatist? The little Maxie calls out, Me too, Blarney. Remember, I'm the only living replica of Charles Lamb. You mean dead mutton, tartly replied Bernard. The other giggled. The same dear old whimsical cactus, he cries. But with all your faults, we love you still. I said still, if that's possible for your tongue, George. Quite still. Curtain. The Woman Who Buys She, entering Art Gallery I wish to buy a Titian for my bridge whist this evening. Is it possible for you to send me one to the hotel in time? He nervously elated. Impossible. I sent the last Titian we had in stock to Mrs. Groat's Dejeuner Feroche. She, making a face. That woman again. Oh, dear, how tiresome. He, eagerly. But I can give you a Raphael. She, dubiously. Raphael who? He, magisterially. There are three Raphaels, madame. The archangel of that name. Raphael Sanzio, the painter, and Raphael Josephri. It is to the second one I allude. Perhaps you would like to see. She, hurriedly. Oh, not at all. I fancy it's all right. Send it up this afternoon, or, or hadn't I better take it along in my car? A shrill hurry-up hooting is heard without. It is the voice of the siren on a new 100-horsepower cubist machine, 1918 pattern. She, guiltily. Chin, that is my chauffeur, Constant. The poor fellow, he's always so hungry about this time. By the way, Mr. Frame, how much do you ask for that, Raphael? My husband is so, yes, really stingy this winter. He says I buy too much, forgetting we're all beggars anyhow. And what is the subject? I want something cheerful for the game, you know. It consoles the kickers who lose to look at a pretty picture. He, joyfully. Oh, the price, the subject. A half million is the price. Surely not too much. The picture is called The Wooing of Eve. It has been engraved by Bartolozzi. Oh, oh, it is a genuine Raphael. There are no more imitation old masters. Only modern art is forged nowadays, she interrupting proudly. Bartolozzi, the man who paints skinny women in Florence. Something like Boldini, only in old-fashioned costumes? He resignedly. No, madam, perhaps you allude to Botticelli. The Bartolozzi I mentioned was a school friend of Raphael, or cousin to Michelangelo, I've forgotten which. That's why he engraved Raphael's paintings. He colors as he recalls conflicting dates. She, in a hurry. It doesn't matter, Mr. Frame. I hate all this affectation over a lot of musty, fusty pictures. Send it up with the bill. I ought to win at least half the money from Mrs. Stonerich. She rushes away. An odor of violets and stale cigarette smoke floats through the hallway. The siren screams and a rumbling is heard in the middle distance. He, waking as if from a sweet dream, vigorously shouts, George, George, fetch down that canvas Schmier painted for us last summer and stencil it Raphael Sanzio. Yes, Sanzio, S-A-N-Z-I-O. Got it? Hurry up, I'm off for the day. If anyone phones, I'm over at Sherry's in the cafe saunters out swinging his stick and repeating the old russian proverb a dark forest is the heart of a woman schools in art yes said the venerable auctioneer as he shook his white head yes i watch them coming and going coming and going 
One year it's light pictures, another it's dark. The public is a woman. What fashion dictates to a woman she scrupulously follows. She sports bonnets one decade, big picture hats the next. So the public loves art, or thinks it loves art. It used to be the Hudson River School. And then Chase and those landscape fellows came over from Europe, where they got a lot of newfangled notions. Do you remember Eastman Johnson? He was my man for years. Do you remember the Fortuny craze? His gamblers, some figures sitting on the grass? Well, sir, $17,000 that canvas fetched. Big price for 40-odd years ago. Bang up? Of course. Maisonnier, Bocaro, and Delatal came in. Couldn't sell them fast enough. I guess the picture counterfeiters' factories up on Montmartre were kept busy those times. It was after our Civil War. There were a lot of mushroom millionaires who couldn't tell a chromo from a Jerome. Those were the chaps we liked. I often began with, Ten thousand dollars! Who offers me ten thousand dollars for this magnificent Moncanje? Nowadays, I couldn't give a Moncanje away as a present. He's too black. Our people ask for flashing colors, rainbows, fireworks. The new school? Yes, I'm free to admit that the Barbizon men have had their day. Mind you, I don't claim they're falling off. A few seasons ago, a Troyon held its own against any Manet you could put up. But the 1830 chaps are scarcer in the market, and the picture cranks are beginning to tire of dull grays, soft blues, and sober skies. The Barbizons drove out Messonnier and his crowd. Then Monet and the Impressionists sent the Barbizons to the wall. I tell you, the public is a woman. It craves novelty. What's that? Interested in the greater truth of post-Impressionism? Ha! Excuse me, my dear sir, but that's pure rot. Public doesn't give a hang for technique. It wants change. Indeed, really? They've made a success, those young whippersnappers, the Cubists? Such cubs! Well, I'm not surprised. Perhaps our public is tiring of the Academy. Perhaps young American painters may get their dues some day. We may even export them. I've been an art auctioneer man and boy over fifty years, and I tell you again, the public is a woman. One year it's dark paint, another it's light. Bonnets or hats, silks or satins, lean or stout. All right, coming, coming. Clearing his throat, the old auctioneer slowly moves away. The Joy of Staring Watch the mob. Watch it staring. Like cattle behind the rails which bar a fat green field they pass at leisure, ruminating, or its equivalent, gum-chewing, passing masterpiece after masterpiece, only to let their gaze joyfully light upon some silly canvas depicting a thrice-stupid anecdote. The socialists assure us that the herd is the ideal of the future. We must think, see, feel with the people, our brethren. Mighty idea, but a stale one before Noah entered the ark. Let us go to the people, cried Tolstoy but we are the people. How can we go to a place when we are already there? And the people surge before a picture which represents an old woman kissing her cow. Or standing with eyeballs agog, they count the metal buttons on the coat of the messonnier cuirassier. It is great art. Let the public be educated. Down with the new realism, which only recalls to us the bitterness and meanness of our mediocre existence. Are we not all middle class? How, then, can art be aristocratic? Why art at all? Give us the cinemagraph, pictures that act, speaking records. Canned vocally, Caruso is worth a wilderness of Wagner monkeys, or self-playing unmusical machines, or chromos. 
therefore let us joyfully stare instead of your step watch the mob a dilettante he is a little old fellow with a slight glaze over the pupils of his eyes he's never dressed in the height of the fashion yet when he enters a gallery salesmen make an involuntary step in his direction then they get to cover as speedily as possible grumbling look out it's only that old bird again but one of them is always nailed there is no escaping the barmecide he thinks he knows more about etchings than kennedy or capel and when montrose and macbeth tell him of american art he violently contradicts them he is the embittered dilettante embittered because with his moderate means he can never hope to own even the most insignificant of the treasures exposed under his eyes every day week and month in the year so he rails at the dealers inveighs against the artists and haunts auction rooms he never bids but is extremely solicitous about the purchases of other people he has been known to sit for hours on a small print until in despair the owner leaves then with infinite precautions our amateur arises so contriving matters that his hard-won victory is not discovered by profane and prying eyes once at home he gloats over his prize showing it to a favored few he bought it he selected it it is a tribute to his exquisite taste and the listeners are beaten into dismayed silence by his vociferations by his agile ape-like skippings and parrot ejaculations withal he is not a criminal only a monomaniac of art he sometimes mistakes a whistler for a durer but he puts the blame on his defective eyesight the city of brotherly noise philadelphia is the noisiest city in north america if you walk about any of the narrow streets of this cold storage abode of brotherly love you will soon see tottering on its legs the venerable new york joke concerning the cemetery-like stillness of the abode of brotherly love over there the nerve shock is ultra-dynamic as for sleep it is out of the question why then will ask the puzzled student of national life does the venerable witticism persist in living the answer is that in the united states a truth promulgated a century ago never dies we are a race of humorists noise-breeding trolley-cars constricted streets that vibrate with the clangor of loosely jointed machinery an army of carts and the cries of vegetable vendors a multitude of jostling people making for the ferries on the delaware or the bridges on the schuylkill rivers together with the hum of vast manufactories all these and a thousand other things place new york in a more modest category in reality our own city emits few pipes in comparison with the city of brotherly noise which sprawls over the map of pennsylvania yet it is called dead and moss-grown the antique joke flourishes the world over in philadelphia it is stunned by the welter and crush of life and politics oscar hammerstein first crossed the rubicon of market street the mountain of society was forced to go northward to this mohammed of operatic music else forgo richard strauss debussy massenet mary garden and oscar's famous head tile what a feat to boast of for hundreds of years market street had been the balking line of super nice philadelphians above the delectable region north of the city hall and penn's statue was cimmerian darkness hammerstein with his opera company accomplished the miracle perfectly proper persons now say gerard avenue or spring garden without blushing because of their increased knowledge of municipal topography 
society trooped northward. Motor cars from Rittenhouse Square were seen near Poplar Street. Philadelphia boasts a much superior culture in the crustacean line. The best fried oysters in the world are to be found there. Terrapin is the local god. And Dennis McGowan of Sansom Street hangs his banners on the outer walls. Within, red snapper soup and deviled crabs make the heart grow fonder. The difference in the handling of the social hammer between Philadelphia and New York, or Boston and Philadelphia, may be thus illustrated. At clubs in Philadelphia, they say, Dabs is going fast. Pity he drinks. Did you see the seven cocktails he got away with before dinner last night? In Boston, they say, Dabs is quite hopeless. This afternoon, he mixed up Botticelli with Botticini. Of course, after that. Now in New York, we usually dismiss the case in this fashion. Dabs went smash this morning. The limit! Serves the idiot right. He never would take proper tips. Here are certain social characteristics of three cities set forth by kindly disposed clubmen. As the Chinese say, an image maker never worships his idols. We prefer the Cambodian sage who remarked, In hell, it's bad form to harp on the heat. The Socialist The Socialist is not always sociable, nor is there any reason why he should be. He usually brings into whatever company he frequents his little pail full of theories and dumps them willy-nilly on the carpet of conversation. He enacts the eternal farce of equality for all, justice for none. The mob, not the individual, is his shibboleth. Yet he is the first to resent any tap on his shoulder in the way of personal criticism. He has been in existence since the coral atoll was constructed by that tiny, busy, gregarious creature. And in the final cosmic flare-up, he will vanish in company with his fellow man. He is nothing, if not collective. His books, written in his own tongue, are translated into every living language, except sound English, which is inimical to jargon. If his communal dreams could come true, he would charge his neighbor with cheating above his position. Being a reformer, the fire of envy burns brightly in his belly, a sinister conflagration akin to that of India's Swami Ram Das. In the thick twilight of his reason he vaguely wanders, reading every new book about socialism till his confusion grows apace and is thrice confounded. From ignorance to arrogance is but a step. At the rich table of life groaning with good things, he turns away, preferring to chew the dry cud of self-satisfaction. He would commit barmicide rather than surrender his theory of the unearned increment. He calls Shaw and Wells traitors because they see the humorous side of their doctrines and occasionally make mock of them. The varieties of lady socialists are too numerous to study. It may be said of them without fear of being polite that females rush in where fools fear to tread. But then the woman who hesitates usually gets married. The Critic Who Gossips He has a soul like a Persian rug. Many colored are his ways, his speech. He delights in alliteration of colors and avails himself of it when he dips his pen into ink. He is fond of confusing the technical terms of the seven arts, writing that stuffing the ballot box is no greater crime than constipated harmonics. But what he doesn't know is that such expressions as gamut of colors, scales, harmonies, tonal values, belong to the art of painting, and not alone to music. He is fonder of anecdote and gossip than of history. 
But what's the use? You can't carve rotten wood. Our critic will quote for you with his gimlet eye of a specialist boring into your own. The story which was whispered to Anthony Trollope in 1857, please don't forget. If he would be so kind, it was the Uffizi Galleries, Florence, as to show him the way to the medical Venus. This is marvelous humor, and worth a ton of critical comment, which, by Apollo, it be. But, as Baudelaire puts it, nations like families produce great men against their will, and our critic is produced, not made. In the realm of the blind, the cockeyed is king. The critic is said to be the most necessary nuisance, after women, in this movie world of ours. But all human beings are critics, aren't they? The Mock Psychiatrist If for the dog the world is a smell, for the eagle a picture, for the politician a nubilung horde, then for the psychiatrist life is a huge, throbbing nerve. He dislikes, naturally, the anti-vivisectionists, but enjoys the moral vivisection of his fellow creatures. It's a mad world for him, my masters. And if your ears taper at the top, beware! You have the morals of a fawn. Or, if your arms be lengthy, you are reversioned to a prehistoric type. The only things that are never too long for our friend the expert of rare phobias are his bills, and the length of his notice in the newspapers. If he agrees with Charles Lamb that Adam and Eve in Milton's Paradise behave too much like married people, he quickly resents any tracing of a religion to an instinct or a perception. He maintains that religious feeling is only a mode of reaction, and our conscience but a readjusting apparatus. His trump card is the abnormal case, and if he can catch a tripping musician, a poet, a painter, he is professionally happy. Homer nodded, Shakespeare plagiarized, Beethoven drank, Mozart liked his wife's sister, Chopin coughed, Turner was immoral, Wagner, a little how-come-ye-so. Hooray! Cracked souls and a Donnybrook fair of the emotions. The psychiatrist can diagnose anything from rum-thirst to sudden death, Nevertheless, in his endeavor to assume the outward appearance of a veritable man of science, the psychiatrist reminds one of a hermit crab, as described in E. H. Banfield's Confessions of a Beachcomber. The disinterested spectator, remarks Professor Banfield, may smile at the vain yet frantically anxious efforts of the hermit crab to coax his flabby rear into a shell obviously a flattering misfit. But it is not a smiling matter to him not until he has exhausted a program of ingenious attitudes and comic contortions is the attempt to stow away a number eight tail in a number five shell abandoned the mock psychiatrist is the hermit crab of psychology and of the living he has never been known to speak a word of praise end of chapter twenty two recording by olivia